366 days ago, when the ball dropped on 2019, the revelers in Times Square and around the globe were more jubilant than they had been in years. 2020 was going to be a momentous year, the start of a new decade. 2020, an auspicious-sounding year, the first perfectly symmetrical year since 1919, and it would be spectacular. The energy of those folks who partied in the first year of a new, roaring 20s was matched only by the promise of a great start and a new beginning. Well, screw those people. Just look what all their damn optimism got us. A global pandemic and a big pile of jack shit. Now, sure, I know it sounds hyperbolic. We've sung this same song a few times before. In fact, it seems like for the past half decade almost, we've been happy to see the back of every year. But I don't believe for a second that there's much disagreement worldwide about 2020 being an historically proportioned tub of hot manure. I mean, it's hard to even remember it at this point, but you'll recall we actually began 2020 with almost half of Australia literally burning on fire. It was all over the news. It was a part of every acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. It was truly the crisis of the century. But who in America even remembers that now? And let's also not forget the entire world mourned together at the tragic passing of Kobe Bryant. In 2020 also, yes, that was this year, not last. And all of that's still just in January. Things only went downhill from there. When Politicon decided to start this podcast in February, little did they know that the universe had other plans for all of us. Our first episode began as planned with a live in-studio audience in Los Angeles and a panel of political experts taking their questions. Yes, one previously scheduled guest had to cancel last minute because they had come down with some sort of cold, but the first episode was a success nonetheless. But even before we'd pressed record on our second live in-person taping the following week, we would learn together that the entire continent had seemingly come down with some sort of cold, too, and that our third week's episode would probably need to be recorded remotely, maybe even the fourth week, too. And, and you know, maybe on the outside chance, we might want to prepare to do our fifth week remotely, too, just in case. Well, you know the drill by now. 44 weeks later, as we wrap up the first year of how the heck are we going to get along, I'm still sitting in Raleigh. Our production team is scattered throughout the West Coast. And while I certainly feel I know JT, Robert, and Edgar very well by now, having connected via audio with them every week for the entire year, I got to admit, I'm not even sure I can remember what they look like. But man, have we heard some incredible stuff together. America is a nation of can-dos. It's the nation of success. Uh, it is known as and has been known as the most powerful nation in the world. Why would we want to admit that anything could bring us to a point of crisis? And so I think that was somewhat of the mindset. Uh, and we didn't grapple with how big we are, nor do we grapple with at being a novel virus. We didn't grapple with the fact that we had no way of knowing how this virus would transmit to whom and how fast. And it did transmit fast. If we could have had that information, or if the scientists could have focused on that, uh, and the medical professionals, and we could have been communicating, and the administration uh, would have been cautious, if we had not dismantled the pandemic office in the White House, maybe we would have been able to give some messages out that could have saved any number of thousands of lives. What type of purse would suit Joe Biden best? <laughs> oh, that's my favorite question. I don't even know what kind of purse that Joe would look good with. I mean, I maybe it's not a Birkin. He's not a Birkin. No, bag I'm going to get in trouble for this, no matter what I say. But again, this is in the spirit of humor, of joking, of of everything, poking fun at myself. It's humorous, and again, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get a lot of crap for it. But I personally, I think that Joe Biden would look fantastic with a Hello Kitty purse. Personally, what? Hello Kitty. Come on, he's at least a Kate Spade level, right? I don't know. I think Hello Kitty. Joe Biden can use my purse anytime he wants. How about that? We'll just end that in, <laughs> in the spirit of just bipartisanship. If Joe Biden ever needs an extra purse, I got him. 
in 2016 in the United Kingdom, uh, our entire country uh, basically soiled its pants. And uh, instead of acknowledging that we had soiled our pants, we uh, said, no, we did not. Uh, this is what we meant to have happen. And in order to prove how okay we were, started doing some vigorous lunges. That's the best, like, catch-all for what I can describe. And now we're, you know, uh, on the surface, uh, from the sort of waist upwards, we're really uh, grinning through it as we continue to lunge. But uh, if you take more than a second to look at us, we are absolutely covered in feces. Does the president believe any QAnon theories? Oh, gosh, no. I, I don't even know that he and I have spoken about it at length other than to say it's junk. I, I, I he literally hasn't don't said that, know. has he? I don't know if he's been asked about it publicly. I think when the when the woman from Georgia won her primary last week, he was asked, and he had not he had not yet come out and say, "Do you think he needs to come out? Do you think it would be a good idea for him to come out and say these things are junk? These particular theories from QAnon are are invalid." Again, I don't. I'm not trying to be, um, you know, uh, evasive here. I'm just saying I, I don't really know anything about QAnon um, other than it, it, it's a bunch of junk. I mean, look, that's not what this campaign's about. It's about focusing on uh, the record of, of Joe Biden versus the record of this president. We think we're in pretty good shape. So I, I don't know anything about that conspiracy theory um, or anything that 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 group does. I really don't. That was Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, talk show host Tommy Lahren, comedian Nish Kumar, and Trump campaign communications director Hogan Gidley. A very diverse group for sure. And that's always been our goal here on How the Heck, to be one of the only podcasts brave enough to bring on voices from all corners of the political map. But as lofty as that goal may be, it hasn't always been as cordial as we might like. Several times our guests have known exactly how to get under each other's skin. And more than a few times, they've been all too willing to let that skin be gotten under. I'm looking at you, Richard Painter and Harmeet Dillon. Let me tell you, every person who has held that trust, who has held that clearance, has lived in death fear of the FBI coming to find out that they had lied while having contact with foreign powers. And that's the that's it. That's the only question on the table that Donald Trump would intervene in this point after this man confessed his guilt to that, confessed his guilt to a plot in which he had planned to actually rendition illegally a U.S. resident to a foreign power, Turkey, for pay to get nuclear power plants to Russia for Russia to Saudi Arabia violating our own laws. I mean, he was neck deep and dirty left and right. And he confessed to it all. So suddenly we're just gonna wave our hands and pretend like none of this occurred. Is just an anathema to, and it's, it's, it shows that the United States is easily bought by whoever it is that wants Mike Flynn out of this, this situation. Yes, yeah, so Harmeet, that doesn't sound good <laughs> at all. Sounds like a lot of deep state, uh, you know, talking points and nonsense. So I, I, I don't know. Tell me, what deep state like, is? I'm, I'm going to lead this dramatic, The dramatic leading voice here and the emphases is just kind of silly. Okay, I'm signing off. I'm signing off. I want to hear a definition of deep state. No, I don't want to hear that phrase thrown around. Nonsense. What is deep state? I'll tell you what deep state is. It's the little old lady who sends out social security checks. It's the cleaner at the GSA who goes oh, out geez. and waxes the floors. And it's people like me. Look, my family has served this nation every moment since April 1864 as black people defending this nation. We're not the deep state. I don't have my, to hear about deep state. My point there is, is no there there is no I mean, there's a lot of drama here. It is. What is this? I'm, I'm signing off. I'm well, not going to listen to well, well, Richard, don't, don't leave you. Richard, don't leave. You're too important garbage. to me now. No, I wanna, no, but I, I want to let her say me. something to you. No, I want to say something to you. I am not going to hear the United States don't government. Don't come for me now. Uh, you got the wrong one now. Richard. I am not going to hear me. I'm just, the United States government attack our CIA, our FBI, our State Department, our military. 
Yeah. And this is exactly how the left-wing communists talk for years. And I'm not going to stand by and listen to people using phrases like deep state. And if, I hear it again, if I hear it again, I am pushing the exit button on this conversation. End of discussion. I'm not going to be bullied by people's hysteria. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should just cut this I'm off. I'm not going to listen to that phrase, and I am signing I, I, off. I, I, don't, I don't really respond well to this type of hysteria. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Tell me what Everybody. deep state is. You know what? How about this? Tell Masha. me what deep state is. Masha, uh, Richard, don't deep come for me. You're coming for the, you are coming for the wrong person. Do not come for me until I, I send for you. I didn't, I didn't say, well, you won't shut up long enough to let her answer the question. Let her do it. Okay, what well then, I think we've, I think you've made your question clear. And what is I it? I want to give her, a, I want to give her a chance to answer it. Look, I was I was invited onto a bipartisan discussion. That's not what this is. So, well, if, well, you, guys to to a, if you guys want to have a, if you guys want to have a, you I know, want to hear what deep state is. Now, now, now hold on, Harmony, 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 I just Richard, listen. So, hold on a second. I have tried my best here to get people to calm down and give you a chance mm-hmm. to respond. I've given you a chance to respond. If you would like to respond, please. I think everyone wants I, to hear I, you it. You know what? I Instead am not going to be bullied. I am not going to be bullied. You're being asked to respond. I am not going to be bullied out of using the words I'd like to answer a question. You're not, you can use whatever words. words you want to deep use. State. Richard, deep state is okay, a thing, but and then, I'm saying but it again. can you explain and it? Again. Then f- and again. Okay, well, great. Listen, I'm so thrilled that we have two people who want to act like middle schoolers. No, I've got one. I, I just would rather, instead of people arguing and screaming at each other, it would just make life state? a lot. Richard, for the love of God, you have asked the question. I want an answer. Are, well... We can't. How how are we going to get a chance to answer if you don't stop asking it? Okay, Harmeet, he's asked you the question. You have what's the deep state? The deep state is all the people who got fired in the FBI for their misconduct and who need to be fired. It's all the dozens of people involved in the unmasking of General Flynn that came out today, earlier today, through Catherine Harridge's reporting, including uh, the Vice President of the United States. It is law enforcement officers. It is law enforcement officers and, and sworn attorneys at the DOJ who betray the trust and betray their oath to the Constitution. It, there are countless people involved in their allegiance to their bureaucratic jobs and their inflated self-worth about their importance in this scheme that they think it's more important than what the people of the United States voted for and the Constitution people? and the Bill of Rights. And, so, Harmeet, you feel like Flynn's case, the case against Flynn was flimsy because you don't believe that... It was that, fabricated. That, it was contrived. It was a violation of his due process rights. It was a violation of the procedures that the FBI and the Department of Justice typically go by. It was an absolute travesty of justice. It was horrible. And yes, by the way, having been involved in criminal cases, not involving politics... Uh, if anybody here is being honest, many people plead guilty due to coercive sentencing guidelines and coercion through the type of coercion that that General Flynn has described in cases. I have had clients who did that. I don't even practice criminal law now, but I'm an appellate lawyer and I've had to deal with that. And so, you know, a lawyer who, who does that has seen that. So the who, fact who that is, somebody who is this pled guilty you're is not evidence. So right, I want to get Barbara in here. We're not able to have a uh, civil conversation here, I can see, because I'm being constantly interrupted with these rants. So I, I just think we should we should probably terminate this. I think you could well, try wanna, again oh with a more compliant. Wanna, you could try again with a more of a potted plant type of a guest. These are my views, but I don't really appreciate the lack of civility in this conversation. So no, I, just I think this is probably good to start over. I, I, think, I, think, I think she answered the question. She didn't name it. It's like Joe McCarthy naming communists, and this is exactly what destroys our government. Let's let Barbara Barbara get in here. Barbara, if you can wipe some of the blood spatter off yourself, which I imagine um, got on all of us throughout this. God help us. People have strong passions about these things, but let me, I I think um, I worked uh, as a federal prosecutor for 19 years. I was a national security prosecutor, and I've read carefully the motion to dismiss the Flynn case. There's absolutely nothing about his rights that were violated here. This was a properly predicated case, which means cases must be based 
on some fact, factual basis that you can articulate. In this case, uh, we had an uh, incoming national security advisor who had secretly spoken to a Russian ambassador to undermine sanctions that had been imposed by the Obama administration, and then he lied about it to the vice president. If you're listening to this show, chances are you're at least as much of a news junkie as I am. And 2020 certainly provided no lack of breaking news coverage. But one topic almost as ubiquitous as coronavirus in our discussions on how the heck this year was the fact that despite our voracious appetite for news and information, less and less Americans find themselves trusting the news that they see or read or watch. Terms like fake news, alternative facts, and, sorry Richard, the deep state may have been coined only in the past several years, but the byproducts of those beliefs about mainstream media really began to take some of their most dangerous forms in 2020. QAnon became a new, frightening, and very little understood part of the American zeitgeist in 2020. Peddling in almost unfathomably ridiculous conspiracy theories and still gaining a larger and more significant following than many observers ever could have believed. But while we had all heard the term QAnon by the summer of 2020, very few of us really understood what the hell that was. So in September, we spoke with NBC News's Brandy Zadrozny to try to understand the impacts of not only this growing and almost cultish movement, but also the greater distrust in the American news media. QAnon is uh, a conspiracy theory born, bred, uh, and very much part of the internet. It's, um, it, it's, it almost doesn't matter what they believe, but I'll tell you anyway. You know, it's born um, of this idea that um, Democrats, Hollywood elite, literally, you know, everybody's eating at a pizza shop, are all sort of part of this satanic cabal that um, abuses and, in some cases, eats children. Um, it's ludicrous. It's very stupid. And um, it, they've made a lot of predictions on this guy Q, um, who's posted to the chans, and then now he's got his own little fringier site. And for a long time, this, like, you know, mysterious Q posted these drops that claimed, oh, and, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be arrested and shackled and brought to Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, that stuff never materializes. But um, these people sort of uh, just watch these Q drops and sort of feed on them and like to decipher them and pretend that they're, um, you know, falling down the rabbit hole, figuring out these clues and they never materialize and it never, never really much matters. But what, what really has happened and why you don't know what understand, why you don't know what it is and don't understand what it is, is because um, it's turned into something more aligned with just mainstream MAGA where it's people who aren't going to the crazy fringe, win, uh, fringe website to find these clues are still getting Q messages and Q memes and spreading that themselves. So you have this whole spectrum of QAnon believers from the diehard people who are you know, on this fringe website looking for the clues that never materialize to the people who are just sharing Q memes in their Facebook groups and joining these crazy Facebook groups and then thinking that they're saving all the children. Um, it's a big, crazy conspiracy theory. Again, it's it's very stupid, and it's very politically expedient to Donald Trump. With the new year, it is the perfect time to build hydration into your new healthy routines. I am not the best when it comes to drinking water. I've never been a fan of water on its own. Um, but you really need that hydration in your healthy routine so that you can feel your best throughout the day. I get headaches when I don't drink enough water. Um, hydration is tied to improved mood, better focus, mental clarity, more energy, clearer skin, all that stuff. But water by itself doesn't really hydrate you as quickly as some of those other drinks that have, you know, the electrolytes and whatever in them. And like I said, I'm not a big water drinker. Water doesn't taste good by itself either. So that's where Hydrant comes in. Hydrant is a refreshing drink mix powder made with four key electrolytes. It's got exactly what you need to hydrate your body. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, zinc, all the good stuff. And it's made with real fruit juice powder. So it tastes really good. Totally the way to drink water now. It's got no artificial sweeteners, no synthetic colors, no nonsense, all science. And then, you know, just for the extra boost, you can get Hydrant's immunity. And it's got all that great stuff, plus vitamin A, B6, B12, C, and D. It's got ginger and turmeric. It's 
so good for your body. It's good to hydrate you, and it kind of helps with your immunity also. It's like water meets wellness, and it's in this vitamin-packed drink mix that you can drink cold or you can drink hot in these cold months. And it's backed by a 100% satisfaction guarantee. I'm absolutely sure that you will be, I guarantee that you will be satisfied. If you don't love it, you can send it back for a full refund. But if you're like me and you know you need to drink more water, but you just can't bring yourself to drink plain water because I can't do it, then Hydrant is exactly what you need to do. It tastes incredible and it totally works. And you can try Hydrant today and save up to 25% on your first order. So what the heck are you waiting for? We've got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash heck or enter our promo code heck at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash heck and enter promo code heck for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash heck and enter promo code heck to save 25% and we thank them for sponsoring the podcast Hydrant where water meets wellness. I grew up in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest, land of grunge and granola and crunchies and hippies and all of that. And I can tell you, I grew up with racist incidents directed at me, directed at my brother. And I can tell you, it shocks a lot of my friends. They can't believe it, particularly in this era, in Seattle. And I'm like, yes, in Seattle, it's everywhere. Uh, But something I must say that has been heartening to me in this conversation Uh, you know, following the George Floyd tragedy is I haven't had to fight people to, you know, when they want to deflect the issue of police brutality and immediately go into the discussion of black on black crime. There is no article that I've written since 2008 about police brutality that I cannot essentially cut, paste, change the name of the black victim, change the name of the white cop, and put it up tomorrow, you think it's a new article. Like, this has been a long-term problem in the African-American community. It's a long-term thing that we have have, uh, rallied about. And this moment is the most multiracial, multi-ethnic moment ever. So we watch all in the family, we laugh at Archie Bunker, and we wait for his comeuppance, right, in every episode, because he says these terrible racist things, and then he gets his comeuppance. But to bigots and to, to people, other people, they, they look, including Richard Nixon, who said, why does everybody make fun of that Archie Bunker guy? He seems like such a nice guy. Writers and commentators Amy Holmes and Ellie Mistal, as well as Emmy Award-winning writer and producer Phil Rosenthal, were only a few of this year's many guests who weighed in on the burning issues surrounding race and racial inequality in America on our 2020 episodes. It would certainly be dishonest to suggest that issues of race and racial inequality became more pressing in 2020. In truth, America has struggled with and continued to lose our battle against racism for over 200 years now. But few would deny that the subject received a lot more much-needed attention beginning in the summer of 2020, and the issue took center stage in several of our episodes. Prior to June, How the Heck had worked diligently to produce and book each episode with diverse and differing viewpoints on our panel. But after the murder of George Floyd at the end of May, we had had it with the disagreement. On a phone call with producers, We all agreed that there was little room for disagreement regarding the circumstances surrounding Mr. Floyd's murder, and that perhaps our tone should reflect that. The following week's episode with, among others, writer Sher Michael Singleton and former Republican National Committee Chairman Michael Steele showed that there really are some things that reasonable people should not disagree on. Certainly, um... You know, Freddie Gray is, is is deeply rooted in memory here. And um, I remember just a few days ago, someone saying they were surprised at the the lack of sort of volatile response from the city of Baltimore. And, I, and my response was because they've been in that room before and they know it well. Um, and, and they share in that anguish and that pain um, just because they're not you know, at the same decibel level as we may see in New York or uh, in Minneapolis, um, that pain was very real and has been very real. 
There's also not a sense of resignation, but a sense of, okay, here we go again, a sense of um, they still don't get it. They still see my son as uh, an object to be scorned, uh, to not be trusted. They still see my community um, as a problem. Um, and I think that those attitudes uh, are reflected on the streets across the country, rightly so. I think that uh, African-Americans um, have had enough. Mothers are tired of weeping over their sons' bodies. Brothers are tired of visiting their, their brothers in jail. Fathers are tired of watching uh, their daughters uh, and family members treated in a manner uh, that lacks respect. And I think that this, this, this moment um, captured by the knee on the neck, uh, and I tweeted this, this quote of, of, uh, of Malcolm X out uh, that, that you know, talks about, you know, my anger, my frustration is in response to that knee on my neck. Um, and, and I think it's important for white folks to understand that uh, and to stop dancing around the core and the heart of what's, what has been a 400-year saga. Uh, this is not something that just blew up because of what Officer uh, Colvin did to George Floyd or what happened to Freddie Gray, or what happened to Trayvon Martin, um, or Breonna Taylor. This is what happened to our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and all those that came ashore in 1619. That conversation has not been had yet. So, you know, I still see white folks shocked when I tell them, you have to tell my son that when they go out in public and hang with your kid, that you know, the relationship between them and the cop is a very different one. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Because we've not had that conversation yet. So I, I think that this, this opportunity is here for us to begin to peel back the scab uh, that's been sitting there in front of our eyes for 400 years and begin to have that conversation. I think Torre's analysis and, and assessment of what's out there on the street is, is real. And you've got to put context to that. It's just, I mean, you know, the sideshow is the looting and, the, and all of that. We, we know that in our community. We know that. We know how that plays out. Yeah, there's an, there's an idiot in every bunch and some of them are imported. We get it. We're not, we haven't lost sight of the underlying argument, the underlying case that needs to be made. Um, and we don't want folks to get distracted from that. So I think, you know, from Baltimore to Minneapolis, from Minneapolis to New York, from New York to, uh, you know, Las Vegas, Nevada, wherever, wherever these things occur, uh, the community says the same thing. Are you ready to talk about this now? Sure, Michael. Yeah, you know, Clay, I, I think um, as a young African-American male, I mean, this is something that I think about often. And it's interesting about this. I, I still have one great-grandparent still alive, my great-grandmother, who's almost 100 years old. And her and I spoke about this a week ago. And she said something that was very unique to me. And she said, you know, I've almost lived a century. I've seen the first black president. I've seen a lot of amazing things. She said, but I really thought at some point we would be beyond this, meaning police brutality, meaning racism, prejudice, stereotypes that are cast against African-Americans, particularly African-American men. And I thought about what she said for, for days. I mean, it just, it, it just kept going over and over in, in my head. And I thought about Dr. King. I went to Morehouse and I thought about uh, one of his speeches where he spoke about the country living up to its highest ideals. And I thought to myself, what are those highest ideals? Because you, you cannot live up to those highest ideals uh, of, of liberty and justice and freedom and permit these types of things to occur. They're incompatible. Uh, with, with those ideals. They're inconsistent 
with, with those ideals. And so I think to see now uh, African-Americans joined by a lot of white Americans and, and other Americans of other races and creeds who are finally recognizing that we have a pervasive and underlying problem in this country that we have sort of overlooked. We've sort of swept it under the rug. We knew it existed, but we went on about our daily lives. And I think we finally reached a point where people are saying, we can't overlook this anymore. We refuse to overlook this anymore. And we want to stare this ugliness in the mirror directly and, and face it. And I think that may be uncomfortable for a lot of people. I mean, I think that the, the highest form of, of reflection is self-reflection. And, and that is because it forces you to look at yourself and admit all of your flaws. It forces you to look at yourself and recognize we've gotten a lot of things wrong for a very, very long time. Uh, but the question is, once you recognize that, once you realize that, what are you going to do to fix it? And when I've been listening to a lot of the protesters, so many of my friends who are around my age have been protesting, some of them are actually leaders in certain places, organizing individuals. And I've seen some of their videos and I've been a part of some of the text changes. And it's, it's more than just a protesting. This is a part of the story that's not being told. People are actually saying these are the steps that we want to see uh, take place. A qualified immunity was mentioned. That is one such thing that people want to see changed. Uh, and so I think that we're at the precipice of something that we have not seen in this country for a very long time. It's more than marching, uh, raising grievance about something that we legitimately should raise grievance about. It's about trying to create structural change so that we don't see these types of things continue. And I think that's important. And I think we need to listen. I think we have to move forward together as a unison and, and create the type of change that's necessary. The reality is we're living in a country that's becoming more diverse. We cannot change those things. And so as that reality becomes more to the forefront, it's quite clear, at least to me, that some things that have been tolerated over the history of our country can no longer be tolerated anymore. If people are truly to be able to live in a country and, again, live up to those highest ideals that Dr. King spoke so eloquently about 50 or 60 years ago. So I'll take a little sidebar here to reflect on our third episode, our very first episode recorded under coronavirus lockdown. Comedian Adam Carolla writers Joel Pollack and Niera Hawk, and Congressman Ted Lieu joined us for what might have been our most peaceful and collegial episode of the entire year. Two unapologetic conservatives and two unabashed progressives all together on the same episode discussing the need for our country to come together to combat the virus causing this global pandemic that had shot the nation down for, at that point, one full week. The sense of community and togetherness and national unity on that episode in the wake of our first week of nationwide shutdown, it was inspiring and it was a reason for hope. Well, we all know how that turned out. By the following week, Republicans had retreated to their corners and Democrats had retreated to theirs, eager to blame each other for failures hurting the national economy and Americans' health. Sadly, as with more and more topics of discussion these days, the unity and togetherness that we experienced in the wake of George Floyd's murder only lasted momentarily as well. While we were fortunate enough to keep our disagreements from devolving into shouting matches, the heat was still there from both sides as we continued to try to tackle some of the issues of race in America under President Trump. The Young Turks' Cenk Uger and Breitbart's Joel Pollack are just two of the many who shared their passions with us. Well, this racism isn't new. It's just that it's now on film, right? Like this is what we saw on video is as old as our country, right? And I'm with you. Like we got to figure out a, a, a path out of it. I can tell you what the path is not. It's not having a virulent racist in the White House who is um, passing down attitudes and um, a sense that this is not Check. something that we need Noted. to combat. <laughs> Noted. Agreed. Now, somebody tell me what is the path. But, Anybody. But, yeah, I just <laughs> but, be, but even, and, and I agree with Bill and Trump, but this is like separate from Trump. Um, look, I, I, I generally defend I our cops, and I want to always try to give our cops the benefit of the doubt. But, Clay, you're right. I mean, I couldn't watch that video. We've got a problem. 
We've got police officers in this country uh, who need some education. They need some community training. Uh, they need to learn how to work with members of their community instead of constantly being at odds in with members of these communities. Um, but again, it would help. Maybe this is part of what Bill was saying. It would help to have a voice in the White House who could bring the country together on an issue like that, like what happened in Minneapolis. Trump's incapable of any of that. What, yeah. what kind so, of training? Can, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, can I, go ahead. I don't, uh, you know, I know we're not going to agree with every, we're not going to agree with everything that uh, is said and that's, that's fine. And I don't feel like I have to argue with every opinion that I disagree with, but I don't think there's a case to be made that Donald Trump is a virulent racist. I think what? that's something that people say, but I think that is <laughs> just okay. not supportable by the evidence. I don't know and if you've been reading the news. What's your, what's your evidence that Donald Trump is a virulent racist? Okay. Well, why so, don't you define virulent racism first, Joel? What do you think it is? No, I, I think not? the person who makes an accusation, with respect, I think the person who makes an accusation should make that definition. I mean, what sure. what is the evidence that Donald okay, Trump I'm is sure a virulent Okay, I'm sure Jink would be happy to do that. Jink, tell me. Yeah, so, guys, there's there's a range here, okay? So, uh, and and so let, it starts with Trump. Trump is a virulent racist. I can give you a thousand examples, but uh, the easy one is... Can you define it for us, though? Yes, okay. So someone who has stereotypes about African Americans that are negative and believes in those stereotypes, says those stereotypes, helps others to um to believe in like those stereotypes and, and 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 act upon them so I, I for example know, yes well let me answer and i'll tell you okay all right so central park five you've got these five kids who turns out they were innocent did not do the crime they were committed uh, that they were accused of now in the beginning trump puts out an ad in the new york times saying execute them kill them murder them okay okay fine you could say hey maybe that doesn't have to do with race maybe he just wants to kill everybody because he's that kind of a vicious guy right wrong who cares let's just kill him right all right maybe that's how trump is but then we find out that they are innocent definitively no question about it somebody else's dna they confess it turns out they the central park five didn't do it trump comes out and says well what were they doing in central park anyway Okay, you know what that means? That means they're black, and they must have been up to no good anyway. We should have executed him. He is the worst human being I've ever seen in my life, let alone in public life, let alone president. If that's that not part might be hyperbole. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. I, I think you should go back and look again at what he said, because I don't want to nitpick the exact quote with you, because, but you've got it wrong um, in terms of what he said on the Saturday and what he said following you also missed the part where he condemned totally, that's his phrase, condemned totally, the neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And that story has been retold intentionally by Joe Biden, actually, among others. But Joe Biden launched his campaign by misrepresenting what Trump had said in Charlottesville. And so I think... Yeah, there have been a lot of examples of Democrats. I, I let you finish. I let you finish. I think that what's striking to me is how Trump's condemnation of neo-Nazis and white supremacists, which didn't just happen at the press conference. He also gave a televised address from the White House or a speech where he went through racism, KKK, neo-Nazis, condemned all of them. That is just not remembered by the media. And I think when you talk about intentionality, it gets into an area where we're trying to read someone's mind. And I think if you don't have a better example of somebody coming out and actually saying or doing something racist, I think it's a hard yeah, case to make. But race is only a part, and many believe just a small part, of what divides us in America. We are divided not only by race, but we're divided by gender. We're divided by ethnicity. We're divided by religion, sexual orientation, political persuasion, class, income. With so many different ways that American society can fragment itself, the question how the heck are we going to get along becomes even more difficult to answer. So in July... Politicon called upon Reverend William Barber, a man who I am not ashamed to say makes me even prouder to be a fellow North Carolinian, but also a man who has become a leading figure in our nation's ongoing struggle to address inequalities and inequities that go beyond race or gender or class for an episode that I'll claim as my personal favorite of 2020. And I asked him to provide a bit of hope, please, for how we can bridge so many divides. 
when I see the way in which black and white and brown and gay and straight and young and old uh, and Jewish and Muslim and Christian and people of faith and not of faith uh, came together in the Poor People's Campaign, we started 2017 and in 2018 did simultaneous nonviolent civil disobedience in 41 states in the District of Columbia, offering themselves up to be arrested when governors, regressive governors, would not even let us come into state houses just to present an agenda. I saw a kind of selflessness, people saying, I'm willing to put my body on the line. When I see these young and old people, black and white, now we saw it in the first Black Black Lives Matter upright, but today, for folk in the midst of COVID to say, we're going to go in the street because we, we, we're not going to stand around while the state is killing us. When I look at the fact that uh, I've seen hospital workers, not only, you know, uh, and I mean, not just the nurses, but janitors and, and orderlies, but people who are going to work, but then are also protesting meatpacking workers, you know, on July 20th, in a few weeks, we're having a strike and a walkout all over the country, Poor People's Campaign, SEIU, uh, 1199, SEIU, and other groups that people are just saying, we have to care for one another. What I see happening in this moment, uh, Clay, is some folk are looking at it like this, and I've had this conversation. In any moment right now, we could be 48 hours from a ventilator and death. I mean, mm-hmm. COVID can happen fast or it can happen slow. And some people are saying, if I know I could be 48 hours from my last breath, then it's time to evaluate what I'm willing to waste, use my breath for. And many people are saying, if I could at any moment be taking my last breath, then I'm going to live as though that is possible. And I'm going to start using my breath, my energy, my strength for things that really matter. And so what I see in this happening it's when I see folk in the street, when I see folk organizing, they are saying, we're going to try to, in this moment, something is trying to suffocate justice, whether it's the White House, whether it's extremists in the Senate, whether it's racists or whoever, and we're going we're gonna to try to make this justice breathe. We're going to try to make uh, 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 establishment of uh, equal protection under the law breathe. There's something trying to breathe. That you know, liberty, justice, freedom, uh, uh, providing for the common defense—all of those great principles are trying to breathe in the midst of this extreme situation that's trying to suffocate the life out of this democracy. And I do see a level of selflessness. Now, we don't know yet how deep it is, because the other thing we forget, Clay, is that when Rosa Parks sat down, they didn't sit down sit down a week. Mm-hmm. Or two weeks, they did it for three hundred and eighty-one days. Right when 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 folks the boycott you're talking of, about the boycott. Yes, sir. Yeah, the, and over against houses being bombed and blew up, blown up. Is when, it just our attention spring. span now is not long enough to do that? What is it that's that's? I mean, well, Dr. King and those and uh, and those who led that civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, there was there was a focus, there was a sort of a, a unifying message that, that Dr. King and his uh, allies laid out. Why, why don't we have that now? Are we too fragmented as a society with Twitter and all that stuff that we aren't able to focus on certain, you know, all focus well, on the same changes? Or why are we not unified? Well, I think sometimes we're not. I tend to look at how we're becoming more focused. You know, I've been with the Poor People's Campaign three years and people have stayed focused. We just had an event two weeks ago, 2.7 million people showed up on Facebook alone. And we've been operating from the ground up for three years in every, in the mountains, in the hollows of the mountains in the Delta Mississippi. And I see a certain intensity. Why? Because of the level of pain. As I said, there are 143 million poor and low wealth people in this country, uh, 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 66 million white people, 61% of all African-Americans, and 700 people dying a day, 80 million people without health care, thousands of people dying every day because they don't have health care. They either don't have health care, they're underinsured, the 80 million people. And and so what's happening, though, Clay, is the pain will make you focus. See, that's what's, what we got. What we have, what we're looking at now is the civil rights movement came into being after a long train of abuses, to use the language of the Declaration of Independence. And people had been focused at different times. But Dr. King said, there comes a moment when the Zeitgeist, that's a German word, tracks you down, the spirit mm-hmm. of the time. And it's like the perfect storm. And so 
we're in another one of those moments. We know for a fact that history only changes, has only changed by war, economic downturn, pandemic, and mass moral movements. Well, all four of those things are, are collapsing right now. Moral movements have certainly been a major part of 2020, and not just moral movements on the progressive side of politics. QAnon followers consider themselves to be a moral movement of sorts. Supporters of both President Trump and President-elect Biden do have one thing in common. Neither voted for their chosen candidate simply because they wanted to harm the country or fellow Americans. Whether we agree or disagree with them, supporters of President Trump and President-elect Biden both saw their participation in November's election as an exercise in choosing someone who they believed would be best for the country. And exercise those rights they did. In 2020, Americans voted in numbers never before seen in American history. Not only did the victor, President-elect Joe Biden, receive more votes than any presidential candidate in American history with over 81 million votes, but the second-place finisher, President Trump, lost the election while still receiving more votes than any former president has ever received. So much of 2020 proved to be a dumpster fire. But whether Americans voted due to hope or to fear— Participation in the American electoral process was one of the very few successes of the year. And our guests on the pod this year, like Sonny Johnson, Paul Begala, and Ann Applebaum, certainly had no shortage of hot takes on the presidential race. I get up, me and my husband, we go together, and we take our daughter with us because it is an important part of, of what we do as Americans. And we cannot continue to just sit and say we have all of these corrupted politicians and we have all of these corrupted systems and we have all these metrics of oppression and then mail in our freaking vote. That's half of the problem with as apathetic as we become as American citizens that we do not understand how important that we are to this process and that we are in it and making sure it works for our benefit as opposed to just making it as easy as possible. See, I think that's why Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination, because he didn't campaign in Twitter Nation. You know, maybe there's an advantage to being 77 years old. He didn't go for the most radical Twitter people in his party. He went for the heart and the soul, which is the middle of his party. And I, I think I really believe this as a matter of strategy as well as a matter of ethics, which is only light can drive out darkness. And Biden said that in his speech. Um, and, and if people want division, they've got division. If they want anger, they've got anger. And the Democrats, no one, certainly not Joe Biden, who's basically a sunny guy. No one can match Trump on that. So if that's what the country wants. God bless them. We have that. They'll keep that. I think people want to change. So what I'm concerned about is what happens after the election to the Republican Party. If Trump loses, but only by a little bit, and the party remains Trumpist, and it appoints as its next leader, its next presidential candidate, I don't know, Don Jr. Or you, you take you know, that back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Tom giving Cotton. you the worst case scenario. <laughs> Tom Cotton, okay. Yeah. Mike Pompeo. Tucker Carlson, who apparently is yeah. interested in the job. So if the party uh, makes that kind of decision... And the party continues to push for the same kind of isolationism, the same to use the same nationalist language, and also to appeal to the same kinds of authoritarian instincts that it's seeking to appeal to now, then countries around the world will look at the United States and say, okay, Joe Biden won this time, but we don't know who's going to win four years from now, and we're going to hedge our bet. So... As we wrap up this truly and globally momentous year, do we dare jinx ourselves by expecting that 2021 will be any better? True, there won't be crowds of millions celebrating in the streets at Times Square, and most bars and gathering places in America are closed no later than 10 p.m., even tonight. But we'll still be awake. We'll still be watching the ball drop on 2020 and the clock start on 2021. Do we celebrate the end of 2020? or celebrate the beginning of 2021. I say, and like most every topic we've discussed on how the heck throughout this first year, it's truly all a matter of perspective. Yes, the conventional wisdom is that 2020 was a year 
that will go down in history books as the worst in most of our lifetimes. But was it all that bad? It depends on how you look at it. If you're a supporter of President Trump, do you mourn and rue his defeat in the November election? Or do you celebrate his four years in office and the lasting impact that'll be made by his last-minute appointment in 2020 of Amy Coney Barrett? If you're a Democrat, do you curse the 12 months spent in 2020 under the presidency of a man who you dislike? Or do you celebrate 2020 for being the year in which your candidate for president won the election and made history with the very first ever female vice president? Certainly, we all collectively mourn the senseless and needless loss of so many lives from coronavirus, and we rue 2020 for the death and destruction that it caused not only to human health, but also to the global economy. But if we want to, and, and that's the key here, wanting to, if we want to, we can remember that 2020 brought happiness and hope to each of our lives in some way. In my life, for example, my best friend won her very first Grammy in 2020. Two other friends welcomed beautiful, healthy babies in 2020. And in each of your lives, too, there are doubtless moments of light and happiness, even in this darkest of years. We just have to want to see it. It's not that much different than the answer to our ongoing question on this podcast, how the heck are we going to get along? We have to want that, too. We have to want to get along enough that we're willing to talk to those with whom we disagree. We have to want to get along enough to try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. We have to want to get along enough to not seek out the places where we disagree and instead seek out those fewer places where we do. So as we wave goodbye to 2020 with all of its many, many flaws and tragedies, I pray you'll take a little time to remember those little glimmers of light and celebrate 2020 just as much as you curse it. 2021 is a blank slate. 2021 is a promise of renewal and opportunity for hope. But none of us is naive enough to believe that there won't be dark days in 2021 also. But for this new year, we will choose to see the potential for only light. For everyone here at Politicon, and how the heck are we going to get along, I'm Clay Aiken, wishing you 365 days of happiness and light, and a very happy new year. We'll see you here next week. I am pushing the exit button on this conversation. End of discussion.